If you got your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, we're going to move ahead in our study through the book of Hebrews. We're studying this all throughout this school year. So, uh, And remember, last Sunday we um, looked at a, at a longer passage. started in chapter 3, verse 7, and went all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. And that was the second of five major warning passages in Hebrews. Um, warning professing believers against um, walking away from Christ, walking away from the Christian faith. And we remember we've, actually, we, we've mentioned and we've actually seen how the book bounces back and forth between um, warnings, warnings to these professing believers against walking away from Christ, warnings against walking away from the Christian faith, that they were being tempted to do that because of persecution. So the bouncing back and forth between those repeated warnings uh, and all, versus all the reasons to stay and all the reasons to persevere in, in Christ. Um, so warning against walking away, here's all the reasons to stay. And uh, to show all the reasons to stay, the, the, all, who, the person who wrote Hebrews um, has been showing how Jesus is better and, and greater than, than everything that they were tempted to leave for. Um, because remember, they were tempted, these were, the ones in this church that were tempted to leave were those who had come out of Judaism, um, come to faith in Christ out of Judaism. Uh, they were already persecuted in the Roman Empire as Jews. But persecution got even worse when they came to faith in Christ, and now they were Christians. And so they were, it, life was hard. We've talked about that. It was, some of them were going to prison because of their faith. Some of them, we learned this from the letter, that some of those who were going to visit their friends who had been put into prison, their homes were ransacked while they were visiting their friends in prison. They go to visit their brother in Christ in prison, they get back, and their home is destroyed. Economic, I mean, just, it, life was hard. And so they were tempted to go back to Judaism, uh, which was at least half the, half the uh, persecution. So to, so to combat that, he, the author of Hebrews is sort of going point by point, showing how Judaism, that they're tempted to go back to, that, that, that Judaism was always pointing forward to Jesus. Like, they would be, if they go back to, if they leave Christ, and go back to Judaism, they would be leaving the place that God was always pointing them to. And so, so far he's talked about how Jesus is better than, I think in chapter 1, how Jesus is better than the angels who uh, tradition holds. The scripture tells us that the angels were the ones who deli delivered the, the stone tablets from God to Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Um, and so Jesus is superior even to those angels who delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, chapter 2 and 3 talks about how Jesus is better than Moses in, in Judaism because Jesus was faithful to uh, a greater task and a greater mission than Moses ever had. Um, and, and then last week in chapter 3 and, and in early part of chapter 4, we saw that Jesus is greater than Joshua in the Old Testament because Joshua, who led the Old Testament people into the Old Testament promised land, why is he better? Because the, the Old Testament promised land was always pointing forward to Jesus too. Because there wasn't anything about that physical land of the promised land that could produce new hearts in people. 
and, and save them from their sins. Only, only through Jesus do we actually find that rest um, that the Old Testament promised land was picturing. That rest, that peace with God, that, that new heart that we need. And so now, in the passage we have today, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, this is sort of a transitional passage that moves us to another uh, section, an ex- uh, really an extended section that's going to go for several chapters showing how Jesus is a better and a greater high priest. So you can see how he's just going uh, from one aspect of Judaism to the next. The angels, Moses, Joshua, promised land, priests. Now he's, he's going to how uh, Jesus is better than, than them all. And, and think about this. As he gets into this part of the argument, um, now Jesus is a greater high priest. At the time that this letter was written, it was most likely written and by the way, I've got part one. I have no idea how many parts this one's going to be because it goes for several chapters. You're on the ground floor here. Um, most, most likely, this letter was written before A.D. 70, the year 70. Um, and the reason that's important is because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed that year by the Romans. So if this was written before that year... Um, that means the temple was still there and um, these priests and all these bloody sacrifices were still very much a present reality um, going on at the time this was uh, being written. There was still a very present reality in the Judaism that they were tempted to leave Christ for. And the, the, the priests that for all their lives they had uh, trusted in to be the mediator between them and God and to offer these sacrifices for them that they brought uh, so that they, their sins might be forgiven. These, were, these priests were still there that they had trusted in all their lives to be that mediator. And in fact, in their minds, hey, this, this, this priesthood, these priests that I see, this is an institution of priests, priests that was instituted by God himself through Moses. So it's not, uh, this is something that God, this was God's idea, these priests, I, you know. And so they had great faith in these priests and trust in the sacrifices that these priests were offering on their behalf, that it would make them right with God, that it, it would give them peace with God. But Hebrews, beginning in the passage we're going to study today, is about to spend a great deal of time showing how Jesus is a greater high priest than any of those priests in Judaism. And then all those sacrifices that the Old Testament priests, still a very present reality in Jerusalem in the temple, all of those sacrifices that they were offering on behalf of the people weren't actually doing anything. They weren't actually doing anything. But though they were, they were, every lamb that was slaughtered was a sign pointing to something else. It was a sign pointing to another, a better sacrifice coming that really would take away sins. All right? So this section on Jesus as a great high priest is, like I said, will run for several chapters. So we don't need to say all that there is to say about it today. We'll have plenty of time to do that in the weeks to come. But to introduce the theme, um, we, see that, we see that introduction here. And in the short passage that we're about to read, um, uh, the point that's going to be made in it, to just to state it briefly, is this. Jesus is a better high priest because he actually saves those who come to him. Jesus is a better high priest because he, he actually saves those who come to him. Um, and, and in these three verses that we're about to read, verses 14, 15, and 16, 
uh, these three verses just extol how great a Savior Jesus is. And it describes Jesus, our Savior, in three ways. Um, in verse 14, we're going to see, one, that he is a perfect Savior. He's a perfect Savior. We'll see that in verse 14. Additionally to that, in verse 15, we're going to see that he's a sympathetic Savior. He's a sympathetic Savior. And then finally, in verse 16, he's a willing Savior. This is a beautiful uh, passage. And uh, before we dive into these three specifics, let's read it together. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, um, your word. This is not merely the word of the human author of this book. This is, uh, this is you, the Holy Spirit, speaking through that person. This is your word, and as such, it is authoritative. It is inspired of you. It is inerrant, without error, and anything that it puts forward is true. It is sufficient for all that we need to know for life and salvation and godliness. It is necessary because without it, we don't know you at all. And we would worship all manner of things. Um, it is clear. Not everything in your word is, is uh, as clear on its own as everything. But, but anything that, uh, any place we come, any passage we come that's hard to understand, you have been so gracious to give us some other passage on the same issue that is much clearer and helps us to understand the hard ones. Uh, thank you for your word. And uh, I pray that you might give us uh, minds to understand the truth that is here and eyes to see it. Not just eyes to see it and minds to understand, but hearts to love it. Hearts to embrace and love it. Your word tells us, uh, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, that there are some who refuse to love the truth and be saved. So being saved and being your people is not merely a matter of knowing the truth but loving it so give us hearts to embrace and love this truth and see it for what it is uh, and give us wills to obey whatever it may lead us to do give me the help that i need to teach and give us all ears to hear i pray in jesus name amen all right so uh, we're just going to look at this uh this passage one verse at a time it's just three verses and see how each of those verses teaches us those three things that i mentioned earlier um so and i each of these truths if if the if the original readers had ears to hear them would be uh deeply encouraging to to struggling believers so let's dive in and think first about how jesus is a perfect savior so look again at verse 14 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession so you see right there that he's introducing the idea of Jesus as a high priest. 
a better high priest. And that will come to dominate the, the coming chapters, as we'll see in a minute. But notice, though, that he begins with the words, since then. Since then, we have a great high priest. And those two words, since then, that, the only way those make sense in English is it, it insinuates that he's building on something that he's already said. Um, and in fact, he's already somewhat mentioned the fact that Jesus is a great high priest. He, he, he hinted at that back in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a perfect, a merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the people. So he's been dropping hints already um, that this was something he's going to show about Jesus, how he's better than the Old Testament in every way, including the priesthood. So now he's going to pick back up on that, though, in that theme, uh, here in chapter 4, verse 14. Um, and his, his point here is that Jesus, as our great high priest, um, is a perfect Savior. And he shows that in this verse in two ways. If you just Let's just pick this verse apart. He shows that Jesus is a perfect Savior in two ways. Uh, uh, and they're not going to be surprising to you if you've been here. So namely, this verse teaches that he's a perfect Savior first because of what he's done, and secondly, because of who he is. One, because of what he's done. Two, because of who he is. And this verse says something about both of those. So what does this verse say about what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation in such a perfect way? Well, as far as what he's done, you see that in this verse in the phrase, who has passed through the heavens. All right? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So Jesus, our great Savior, is our perfect Savior because he has passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Well, like I said, this, this begins a passage that's going to go for several chapters. And so right here in those words, he passed through the heavens, he's already in chapter 4 anticipating something he's going to explain more fully in chapter 9. Okay? So just hang with me for a second. So, and in, in chapter 9, he's going to explain what he s says here more fully. And so uh, look for example, it'll be on the screen, but you can turn there if you want. But on, in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, this is what he says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's several things about that. Just notice Christ, he's a high priest of the good things that have come. All those, all those priests and high priests uh, of the Old Testament, they were priests of things that had not yet come. They were still waiting on Christ to come. When Christ, he, he, he comes with the reality. What reality? An eternal redemption. That's the last words that he was bringing about. So it, but that, that idea of passing through the heavens is he, he, uh, he came through the greater and more perfect tent, not made uh, with hands that is not of this creation. Um, that idea there. But it's more clearly later in that chapter in verse 24 when he says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, such as, by the way, what, is, what are holy places made with hands? Namely, the Old Testament tabernacle or the Old Testament temple, right? So he didn't enter the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So from those verses in chapter 9, it's clear that when back in chapter 4, he says that he mentions the fact that Jesus is the one who has passed through the heavens. He's talking about what this is talking about here in chapter 9. It's a reference to the fact that Jesus has finished his work of redemption. Um, uh, looking, looking back at uh, still in chapter 9, these two verses that I mentioned, a uh, couple of things back in there. We're told specifically, for example, in those verses 9 and 12, that Jesus, passing through the heavens, secured an eternal redemption. It's done. That's what it's saying. It's done because when did he pass through the heavens? He passed through the heavens after his life, after his death, after his resurrection. Passing through the heavens is talking about his ascension. You can read about his ascension in Acts chapter 1. But he didn't ascend into heaven until he had lived and died and rose again and said, it's finished. It's finished. Eternal redemption secured. That's the last words of that, that verse. But then looking at verse 24 again, uh, now that he's there in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, it said, that verse says he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. He's interceding for us. That's how chapter 7 verse 25 will put it. He's interceding for us until we see him face to face. He is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf until we are there with him. It's done. Because what, he's done, what he has done, the work that he has done, was perfect. And, 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 and you know, like all those Old Testament priests, year after year after year, they offered those sacrifices. Christ came and did it once. We don't have to come back same time next year and do it again. It's perfect. What he did was perfect. But it's only perfect also because of who he is. I couldn't have done for myself or anybody else what, what he has done for all of his people. So, chapter 4, verse 14, back our original verse, says about who he is, that he is Jesus, the Son of God. Who has passed through the heavens? Whose work is finished? Jesus, the Son of God. And that reminds us of two things about who he is. Uh, notice, for example, first, that it doesn't say Christ, the Son of God, which would be true. It says Jesus, the Son of God. It reminds us that this is the one who took on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. Right? He was made like us in every way, is what I'm trying to say. He became like you in every way. Jesus of Nazareth. It didn't talk, it doesn't, it doesn't refer to him by his title, but by his name. Jesus, the Son of God. And he, came, he became like us in every way so that he could take our place for our salvation. But it also says that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, which reminds us that he is God who took on human flesh. All right? Even the Pharisees, even the Pharisees knew and understood that when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming himself to be God. We're told that. It says in John, Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he had just healed a man on the Sabbath, by the way, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus, when it says Jesus the Son of God, Jesus is God himself who took on human nature. 
Both of those things had to be true for us and for our salvation. So that as man, truly man, he could take our place for our salvation. But he had to be truly God as well, so that he could bear on himself the eternal weight of our sin. Think about that. If I bear my own sin, how long must I be in hell to pay for it? For eternity. It's an eternal weight of sin. But Jesus, because He is eternal God in human flesh, He can bear in a moment what it would take me in eternity to, to, to endure. He's a perfect Savior. And the author is reminding them in verse 14 that anything they leave Christ for will leave them hopeless before God. Because only Christ is able to save us and save us perfectly. He's a perfect Savior. As you come to verse 15, he makes a second point about Christ. Specifically that he's a sympathetic Savior. Not only has he perfectly dealt with our sins before God, but as we, as we walk daily through this life and struggle with our own weaknesses and sins, he's a sympathetic Savior. Look at again at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's so many things to notice here. But as I, as I, I don't know how many times I've read that, this verse, but as I was looking at it afresh to teach it this morning, the first thing that left off the page of this verse um, was that he doesn't say um, our weakness singular. He says our weaknesses plural. You know? What is that? What is that? It just means that Jesus our Savior knows not just our weakness in general. He, he knows our weaknesses, all of them in particular. I mean, if you just dwell on that, that by itself is encouraging. Jesus doesn't just know that I'm weak. He knows all my weaknesses. And Jesus, our Savior, knows not... Uh, our weakness, but our weaknesses. And what does it say he does with, uh, with our weaknesses? Does he, does he stand in harsh judgment over them? No. He sympathizes with them. He sympathizes not with just our weakness in general, our weaknesses, all of them in particular. He sympathizes with us. And we need to know what that word means. He sympathizes with them. Sympathize is actually the Greek word used it's actually a greek word sympathize it's a compound word that literally means to suffer with to suffer with so he sympathizes with us he suffers with us when we suffer that's beautiful he suffers with us he's with us in our suffering he's with us in our weaknesses how how is this perfect savior Jesus, the Son of God, how is He with me in my weakness? 
How is he with me in my suffering? Because it says in this same verse, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Really? Really? Was he really tempted in every respect as we are? Absolutely. Because you've got to think about it this way. Maybe he wasn't tempted in the same exact occasions that you're tempted, but he, is, he was certainly tempted in every category that you are tempted in. Does that make sense? Maybe not every specific occasion. Like, for example, the Internet didn't exist in his day. But sexual temptation is sexual temptation. You see what I'm saying? The occasion for your pride may differ, but the temptation to pride comes in a thousand forms. So, he, he, not every occasion, but every, he had occasions of his own. Every category that you're tempted in, he was tempted in. And all of his temptations, think about it this way, was, were external. They were outside him because he had no internal disposition to sin. Right? He had no sin in his heart. You do, and I do. So do, you, so do you say, does that lessen the severity of his temptation? Does that mean he's not tempted exactly the way I am? Because I have an internal problem and an external problem. He only faced an external problem. Well, most of our sins, by the way, um, have an external occasion. Right? They only become a sin because of what our heart and our minds does with it. Does that make sense? And what, what, what makes uh, Jesus' sinlessness all the more occasion is, is, is this fact. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. So talking about the fact that uh, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. How, how, that, um, how amazing that is. And how it doesn't weaken but only strengthens his temptation in our place. C.S. Lewis wrote, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very, good, very hard to be good. A silly idea. This is right, by the way, he was writing this in the 1940s, so in the midst of World War II. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about, the, about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. The only complete realist. <laughs> so why does the writer of Hebrews emphasize this about Jesus? Not just that he's the the perfect Savior who can bring us to God and, and, uh, and, and, and give us peace with God, but who 
sympathizes with our weaknesses. Why, why emphasize this about him? Because Precisely because these people he, were writing to, he was writing to were weak and weary, tempted to leave. We're weak and weary. And Jesus is a high priest who not only forgives our sins, but understand my, understands my weaknesses particularly. And he suffers with them. He walks with me in them. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he'll be with me as I go to mine, you know, and I persevere in him. He's, so he's a perfect Savior. He's a sympathetic Savior. But finally, he's a willing Savior. Look again at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, here's what I want to point out about, first about this verse. And it, it's a sweet truth. Remember that <laughs> this isn't just the word of whoever wrote Hebrews. This is God's word to us. Right? This is God speaking to us. So, with that in mind, read it again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is God speaking to you. This is God inviting us to draw near to Him so that we can receive His mercy and find His grace to help us when we need it. And this is God speaking to us and He says not only to come, come confidently. Come confidently. Draw near with confidence. How can I, how can I draw near to the, God's throne confidently because of point number one he's a perfect savior that's how i can come confidently jesus is already there on my behalf he has already secured an eternal redemption passed through the heavens job done finished done so when you come come confidently not because you deserve it but because the work that jesus did for you deserves it Jesus deserves it. And confidently isn't proudly. Don't come proudly, but come confidently. You can come humbly and confidently at the same time. Humbly confident. But the other thing I want you to notice here is again, this is God's word to us, as all of it has been. But he is inviting us to do what? They say approach his throne. To, but what do we approach his throne for? To ask for something. He's inviting us to ask him for his mercy. To ask him for his grace. To ask him for his help. Ask him for it. He's saying, come and ask me. Now, 
we, we know that Scripture tells us in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is always, for those who have come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, God is always working for our good. He never stops doing it. So, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, he says in Jeremiah um, 32, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will, in other words, I will always be doing good to them. God is always doing good to you. Never stops. That's the Old Testament. New Testament is the same way. You know what verse I would refer to first of all? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not just the good things, not the easiest things to deal with. All things, even bad things, work together for your good. He's working them together for your good. So he is always working for our good. So why is he telling us here to ask for it? If he's always doing me good, why is he telling me to ask for it? Well, here's the thing we need to know about those promises that he's always doing us good. He doesn't, he's always working for our good, but he doesn't always work for our good in the same way all the time. Sometimes he works good in our lives in ways that don't immediately seem like it. And this verse, when, if, he, if this verse says, approach my throne confidently and ask me for grace, for mercy, it, and, 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 and notice the, by the way, notice the, the, the so that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy. So that we may find grace to help in time of need. Ask so that you'll get that. Implying, if you don't ask, you might not get it. Doesn't mean that God is going to stop being good to you. What it does mean is, in that moment that you don't ask, you might be forfeiting blessings and mercy and grace and help forfeiting it that you could have otherwise had if you had asked when we don't ask him for those things it's most often because we're either just floating through life in our own flesh and forgetting about god altogether or we are just presuming upon him and we just assume that he'll give us all that we need even without our asking but God tells us to ask for it. And when we do, He'll grant it. And when we don't, He, might, he can withhold his, his mercy, withhold His blessing. And even when He withholds it, He's not, not doing us good. He's doing us good by withholding it. Why? Because in withholding it, he's, He makes it tougher. And I realize I never asked God for His help. And it teaches me my need. And it teaches me my reliance. And it also proves in my mind God is the giver of all good things, and it brings Him glory. And that's a good thing to teach us. Because when we do learn that lesson, and we do ask Him, this verse is telling us, come confidently. He is ready, and He is willing 
to give us the mercy and the grace and the help that we need for it, any and every situation that we face. Three verses. He's a perfect Savior. He's a sympathetic Savior. And He's a willing Savior. That's a beautiful passage. Let's pray.